coming together from across the United States. The real issues you don't hear about elsewhere. Focusing on what matters to you and your neighbors. Welcome to Resist Bot Live. Hey y'all, it's October 17th, 2021. I am your moderator, Melanie Dion, and this is Resist Bot Live. Welcome. Um, just want to remind everyone if you're listening to us in Podcastville. We are live streaming this Sunday and every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern. You can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, subscribe to us on YouTube or Twitch. We would actually love you forever if you subscribe to us on YouTube or Twitch. For those of you in Streamland, you can hit us in the comments section. If time is permitting, we'll make sure to get you in during the Q&A section. So in the meantime, let us have it. I am um, super eager for today's discussion, so I'm just going to dive right into it. Here at Resist Bot Live, we focus on what is actually impacting our neighbors, and nothing puts the neighborly spirit on display like the topic of asylum. It's become a really hot-button issue, um, especially lately, and a lot of it has to do with people needing the information, or a lot of it, a lot of it is people not necessarily having the information and just talking on what they've picked in fragments. So what we're going to have, who we're going to have is a very special guest. We're diving right into Asylum 101. And that's going to, so we want you to come and learn with us. Um, I'm going to bring the panel up. We have Susan Stutz, Athena Foulet, Christine Liu and Dr. Joseph Kuhel. Good, good afternoon, everybody. Hello. Hi there. Hi, everyone. So, are y'all ready for Asylum 101? Because I am yes, very, this. very Absolutely. excited. The cover. I, I think it's, and, I, and I've said it before, but we have fragments of what asylum is and what it looks like. So, I would like to get you guys thoughts on, um, and even just in preparation for today, we've had our talks and content meeting, but what what are you guys thinking about today's, what are you looking to get from today's topic? I'll jump in. I, you know, I really don't, I learned through this process preparing for the show that asylum is a relatively new process by all accounts. And so I'm interested in learning about what that looks like for the person on the border and, you know, how they engage with that process when they are there with their families and just looking for a home here in the United States. Christine. I'll jump in second. And so, sorry, sorry, Mel. I'll jump in no, second ahead, and say, say that as a historian, one of the problems we have is we don't get to talk to people, a lot of people often who are most affected by things. So for instance, one of the most famous stories in American history about asylum is a 1939 episode involving the U.S. U.S. Saint, U.S. Uh, the ship St. Louis, which we'll talk about a later, uh, and we didn't get to interview those people who were denied asylum. So I'd like to hear. I'd like today to get as much as I can about people who are going through it, or who have had relatives go to go through it. I can talk a lot about people 
long dead, but it's uh, it's important to hear about how these things impact people's lives today. Christine, I know you have a perspective. You have not only your own personal perspective, but also from a global perspective. So I would love to hear what you're looking to get out of it. Yeah, you know, the lens that I bring to this is as an immigrant myself, I'm often in conversations where you you find that you have to dispel this notion that there's a good immigrant and a bad immigrant, right? The illegal immigrant um, title versus those that came here legally, because as we all know, due to politics, the um, goalpost moves all the time in regards to that. And so for me, I'm just here as a listener, but also as contribution to that lens of, um, you know, what, how asylum and those that are affected and those that are being covered in the news cycle actually affects all of us who are immigrants, regardless of our status, how we came here, who we are, what communities we come from. So, so that's what I'll, I'll be contributing. Thank you so much. And here, one of our things, we, we talk about struggling in public amongst ourselves, but we also really, really believe in consulting the experts and so we kind of have Athena to thank for that. So hi, Athena. Hi, y'all. Hi, everybody. Um, thank you for hosting this. This is going to be a fantastic conversation because, as even some of our earlier comments have stated, there's a lot wrapped up in this discussion of asylum and immigration and forced migration and displaced people. So I think it's Resistbot at Live is giving a wonderful opportunity to just sort of st- take a step back go at a very macro level and really try to understand this concept of asylum. Asylum has been around for thousands of years in different various governments, iterations, and cultures. So what I think we're struggling with now as a society in the United States is sort of part and parceling that out to see how we as a society are going to, one, acknowledge our our contributions possibly to the the need for asylum around the world, but also more importantly, just get a clear understanding of how these laws in particular can be um, exercised, respected and imposed in in correct ways uh, at the border, uh, specifically in terms of the discussion that we're having today. Because uh, again, there's just a lot tied up into it. It's a conversation about human rights. It's a conversation about um, economics. It's a conversation about international relations. And all of this, at the heart of it, I think, at the very foundation of the struggling in public, we're going to want to set up a foundation of like, what exactly is asylum? Um, when is it granted? When is it not granted? And what your average American citizen, public engaged voter should know about this moving forward as we continue to build out additional resources and and hopefully petitions about this topic. So we have um, our our professional, uh, Dr. Nancy Oretzkin. We'd like to bring her up with us. Welcome, welcome, Nancy. We are so glad that you're joining us today. Thank you. I'm I'm thrilled to be here. I I'm here on the border almost. I'm in Las Cruces, New Mexico, which is literally 45 minutes from the. El Paso border and actually 45 minutes from Fort Bliss where they have all kinds of stuff going on. So it's with what you're seeing um, to to dive right in, I see a lot of people 
immigration and asylum are not synonyms, but it seems like a lot of people treat them that way. So Absolutely. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. If you could just go into kind of pointing out the difference where asylum is set apart from the immigration process. Yeah, I mean, immigration is a vast area. And most people, if they enter the U.S. lawfully, enter with a visa. And there are also people that enter with a non-immigrant visa, like a work visa. Asylum is completely different than that. Asylum is an extraordinary relief given to people that flee their country because their government is either incapable or unwilling to protect them. So asylum is actually a defense to deportation. Okay, somebody can can request asylum two different ways, affirmatively or defensively, but what you're seeing on the border is when people are at the border because they have fled a variety of countries, they don't have a visa, they go to the border and they express fear of return to their country. Now, under normal circumstances without you know, Title 42 and without the pandemic and without President Trump, okay, under normal circumstances, if somebody had a credible fear interview, they would then be paroled into the U.S. and either detained or not detained and be able to fight for asylum, which takes a number of years. So that's just the beginning. If somebody is Inside the U.S., legally or illegally, they have the opportunity to submit an asylum application to USCIS and request asylum. If USCIS, that, that's an interview by very often a non-attorney, does not feel they meet the legal requirements, then they refer them to the court. And they could take, I have clients that have been seeking asylum for seven, eight years. From so different countries. about regarding your clients, I'd like if you would to talk a little bit about what you do at the um, at, at, at SAMI, the Southwest Asylum uh, Asylum Migration Institute and how that comes in, how how this process comes into play with uh, your, your well, work. I'm a I'm a uh, retired professor, practicing attorney, and I represent people seeking asylum. And so what you're witnessing on the border is people that come to the border and to get in and they have to pass what's called a credible fear interview. And then they go to the court and I represent them at the court. One of the confusing things for people, though, is the immigration courts are not constitutional courts. They're under the Department of Justice. The judges are all appointed and confirmed by the president. There is no other uh, venue for somebody to become an immigration judge. There's a big movement that the immigration court be independent of the Department of Justice because there's all kinds of conflicts under the Department of Justice. But the immigration court then is typically in a federal building, and it's called the Executive Office of Immigration Review. And I represent clients in that court. And actually, the court in El Paso is one of the worst places to seek asylum. They have one of the highest denial rates. So what I try to do is move people out of that court. So currently, I have 
cases pending for Nicaraguans in Miami, Cameroonians in Baltimore, Guatemalans in Dallas and Pakistanis in Sacramento. All of them came at some point to the border because that's where I interact them. Either get them on bond or I'm able to get them in and then move them. But my job is to represent them in an immigration court. I have a question for you, Nancy. Um, with regard to the hearings and whatnot, what type of evidence does somebody have to present to the court in order to prove that they have that well-founded fear of being returned to their homeland or the country where they came from? They, they need evidence to prove every allegation. And so that's also a problem because all the evidence has to be presented in English. And depending where it's coming from, it has to be certified or notarized. And very often, like I represent a lot of Africans. And very often they have fled for their life. Their house has been burned. All their evidence has been burned. And it's very difficult to replicate that type of evidence. By law, on somebody's credible testimony before a judge, a judge could grant them asylum, but very few do. And, and let me just back up a second, because people get confused. In order to qualify for asylum, you have to be in one of five groups. You have to either be, you have to claim your asylum on race, national origin, political opinion, membership in a particular social group and I'm leaving one out, but you have to prove you fit into that group. And then you have to prove that your persecution was done on account of the government. And if you don't have past persecution, you need to prove you have a well-founded fear of future persecution. Your family was murdered or they are looking for you because of some political opinion. And so very often, for example, Mexicans, there's lots of Mexicans seeking asylum, but they're, they've suffered persecution at the hands of the cartel. That's not the government. Although very often, if you talk to people from Mexico, they'll say, but everybody knows the government's part of it. It's all intertwined, but the judges don't believe that. They don't believe the experts. So that's an issue among a lot of other issues. I don't want to get lost, but it's the five, the group of five government, and you need documents. You're in a court. You need documents translated into English. Big, what kind big, of document? I'm sorry. What kind of documents? Well, okay. So let's depend on a case. Okay. Let, let's say, you know, political opinion. That's the one people are most comfortable or know about because they think of political asylum, but there's a lot of other reasons to request asylum. Um, I represented somebody from Zimbabwe and Zimbabwe, you know, has a very corrupt government and they had to get documents to prove that there's this ZANF-PF group that go after people. It's not a formal political party, but I had to get four or five affidavits from people that attended meetings where my client was to identify him as a secretary of this one community. It was very difficult. I mean, one of the most important 
modes of communication is WhatsApp. I get things on WhatsApp because that's the communication that's used at least in Africa, Central America, because they cut their internet. So you need documents attesting to the fact that you were detained. So you need to find somebody that knows that you were detained. You need to get documents if you made a police report. Very often people don't make police reports because the police are as corrupt as the people going after them. I represented a woman who claimed she thought, and and listen to this, claimed she thought she was raped. She was from Uganda and she was gay. And she was at a festival and she passed out. And when she came to, she had blood between her legs, but she couldn't lie. She didn't know. So we had to get a medical report. Well, I had to get a medical report on her when she was in detention and they denied the doctor admission to the detention center. I mean, these are challenges that everybody faces. The other thing is most people seeking asylum at the border, the ones that that you all witness and see, have no legal representation. So that's a problem in and of itself because you're involved in a legal proceeding. You all know as U.S. citizens, if people, my friends, get traffic tickets and want to fight it, they're traumatized. I mean, this is far more intense. And if by definition you're seeking asylum, you've been persecuted. Now, whether the government recognizes that, you have had something awful happen to you for you to flee your home. One of the huge issues is we don't recognize um, environmental you know, destruction as a grounds for asylum. We don't recognize poverty. We don't recognize um, corrupt cartel civil wars. That doesn't necessarily fit into our legal definition of asylum. Having said that, that doesn't mean these people aren't traumatized. And so I do have a question because you mentioned um, with the woman in Uganda that she was queer. That is also a a a, a reason that people would seek asylum. That fits, in a into, self, right? that fits into membership in a particular social group. And one of the I, I've represented a number of gay people from Africa because, as you are aware, many African uh, countries criminalize that act. Mm -hmm. And so we have that on our side. We can show the law is criminal. But I remember the first time I represented somebody who was gay, he was from Ghana. And I, he had a hearing and the judge said, how old were you when you knew you were gay? And I was like, what? I mean, and he, you know, this guy, actually he won his case and and he's now a U.S. citizen and he actually lives in New Mexico because after we won his he had nowhere to go, so he came to Las Cruces and graduated from New Mexico State, my hero. But this was a guy who was sent to boarding school at age 14 and had had relationships. He was 22 when he made his claim, and the judge was just brutal. I mean, that's that was in 2014, and I learned how to prepare people after that type of questioning. In situations like that, do you think that race plays a part in... Absolutely. (laughs) 
My clients, 90% of them are black. Mm-hmm. They're from Africa. But the interesting thing, I mean, there's some funny things. So I represented a guy from Somalia who left in 14 and he got to the border and he and his father were teaching English in mixed classes between men and women. And Al-Shabaab came in the middle of the day and shot his father dead, right in the middle, in the middle of the classroom. And he fled. I mean, these are, you know, when you get into asylum, this is what what just worries me. People have had awful experiences. It's traumatic. And you've got to prepare them to testify. And sitting and crying in front of a judge isn't testifying. And I'm not saying that I could do it. I, I mean, I've represented, you know, a lot of young men. I have two young boys. My kids never could have done it. They're, you know, white middle class privileged kids would never have been able to sustain that type of questioning. But the Somalian guy thought he'd get to the border and they would wave, you know, little flags, say welcome for what you did for helping to promote democracy. And what they did is put him in detention. And he sat there for 12 months till I was able to win his case. I I mean, so, but one of the interesting things, I asked him how he was treated in detention, because that's another issue. He was in detention in El Paso, which is not known for a nice detention center, not that there are any nice detention centers. And his response to me is, okay, I've never been around so many white people because people coming from Africa typically have lived in total black communities. And so it's a very, Africans are very different than African-Americans. Right. Yeah. One, one so, thing I want to do, I, I, I don't want to uh, cut you off. Um, no, it's fine. I want to make sure that our commenters are getting in. If you have questions, um, time permitting, we're going to make sure um, that. Oh God, I, I'm just that, looking now at the chat. I have a question. Yeah, no, you're fine. You, you are totally fine. You don't have to do the, you don't have to do the tech. We told you that. Um, okay. I did want to um, loop in Christine because I think she may have had um, some questions for you. Sure. Yeah, you know, as I, as you're talking, I'm thinking the lack of uh, legal representation, uh, you know, immediately made me think of when you combine that, at least from my lens with the Asian culture, um, the lack of language uh, and even just this, uh, you know, it's not common in, in our culture to seek asylum or seek help because maybe there is a cultural aspect to it. So I'm just wondering if you have had experience with that from you know where different cultures may not even understand or realize that they have this avenue or pathway for themselves. I mean, absolutely. That's a really great question because preparing somebody for an adversarial hearing that doesn't come from an adversarial culture. I mean, I I've had one Japanese client. I most of the um, Asian people seeking asylum come in through New York or San Francisco. Remember, I'm at the landlocked border, and when they can't get in anywhere on the coast, they come up through the center of Mexico, through Central America. But it's very difficult to explain to them how they're going to be treated in this hearing. Like some people think, I'm going to tell the judge what happened to me, and this judge is going to be so nice. They forget they're cross-examined by the government attorney. And remember, the government's job is to deport everybody they can. 
let's be very clear. And I, I know I'll take on a government attorney, but I learned that early on. I, I started in this later in my legal career. And some attorney said, how do you want to take this with sugar or not? They want to deport them. You've got to fight why these people are entitled not to be deported. Culture is huge in telling people how to be confrontational. That is so not in the Asian culture, not in the Hispanic culture. I mean, the African, many of the African tribes, it's a big problem. And we, our legal system, they don't care. It wasn't envisioned to be like this, but I'm, I'm being honest. And I'm glad you mentioned that because I want to loop in our history professor, Joe, Dr. Professor Buzzkill, um, because I know I, I know he is he has some questions and comments on the on the historical perspective of this. If you, you're muted, Joe. I just have one question for you, Nancy, and that is, it's going to relate to what I say later, but you've been in this field for a while now. Uh, how have, ha, have things, do you notice changes from administration to administration to administration or generational changes, both in terms of policy and attitude towards uh, uh, asylum? You know, I'm asked that question, and in a course, there is policy. Okay, I mean, we all know under President Trump, he probably he couldn't get anything through Congress. So to really change the Immigration Act, which there's a statute, Congress has to act. But he issued hundreds of executive rules that impeded asylum. But to deport somebody, it's a long process. So, you know, under President Obama, more people were deported than under Bush or Trump. President Biden is more human, but he has kept in place Title 42. MPP has been reinstated and the same people work in those fields. So under President Biden, I can tell you I had an affirmative asylum interview last March for a Afghani that clearly should have won and he was referred to court. He wasn't granted asylum as in, in an affirmative process before USCIS, to be clear. They can't deny asylum, but they refer it to court because this person found that, that my client didn't have a well-founded fear of persecution. Clearly, this was before the U.S. pulled out, but it was in the news every single day, and his brother was a translator who had come to the U.S. in 15 and even worse, in 13, married a U.S. citizen soldier in Afghanistan. So his family was targeted and the families in India. And we can't get them into the U.S. This was under President Biden. So I'm not a policy person. I want to be very clear. I'm not a historian. I'm not. I'm a practicing attorney that has been representing asylum seekers, you know, since 2010. I want to be very clear on my perspective. Thanks, Nancy. I had, uh, speaking of the difference between practicing and policy, we have two questions in from the audience today. Um, one is pretty straightforward in just terms of um, 
who handles the opposition at an evidentiary hearing and how rigorous can that opposition be? It's a DHS attorneys that are ICE attorneys that work under the Department of Justice, and it depends who they are. I mean, some of them are very sympathetic and their questions are very rational. And some of them are absolutely awful. I represented a woman from El Salvador who had tried to come to the U.S. three times. So on the third time she got in, so she was barred from asylum because she had been deported. There's another relief called withholding of removal. So asylum isn't the only relief. Asylum is the one if you win, you're on a path to citizenship. But you can win and stay in the U.S. under Convention Against Torture, that's a cat claim, or withholding. But she had a male judge, a male interpreter. She was 22, very devout Catholic, had been raped. And she had to explain in detail what that rape was to the U.S. attorney. And I, I wanted to punch her myself. She sat next to me and sobbed for three hours during this testimony while the U.S. attorney said, and then what did they do? And then what happened? I couldn't believe it, but this has allowed me to toughen up my clients. And I'm here to tell you, she was granted withholding. She's now married in the U.S., has a child, and the church is what got her to to be able to be okay. But, I mean, so it depends. And we had one more question. Thank you for that. We had one more question um, coming from Paula, who is asking about... um, how this valid, yeah, validation and admissibility of documents play into these proceedings that you you do, and what happens when you can't obtain that crucial. So again, uh, it's document. okay. It depends on the judge, but there is a you know a, a like everything in the law. There's a manual that tells what you need and how you have to certify it. I'm looking. The process took four months and involved multiple frustrating landings. Wow. The U.S. Embassy was not open. So if this is a non-detained case, sometimes the judges will continue the hearing and allow you to get the evidence. If you're in detention, your case moves much quicker. And depending on the judge, they will not give you that time. And sometimes, like I said, they can believe the client. But very often, that in and of itself may be the grounds of why they lose. It's very frustrating. So I want to um, kick it over a bit to Joe um, for for a little historical perspective from Professor Buzzkill and um, to, to give us an idea. We, we know what asylum and immigration looks like now. From the historical perspective, what was it then? Well, one of the reasons I'm on this ResistBot team is because my show is Professor Buzzkill, which tries to eliminate and uh, well, it's address and then hopefully eliminate myths about history and and misconceptions about history. And one of the strongest misconceptions about history in America is that uh, our immigration system has always had a set of rules and a set of official laws that one could follow in order to come in. And that's just simply not true. The vast majority of immigrants to the United States up until the 1920s uh, had no laws except uh, had no laws restricting them, or there were no laws at all to, to, to follow, except for 
uh, laws that were based on race. And that was especially in, 19, in 1875 and in the 1880s, uh, uh, Asian Restriction Acts and the Chinese Exclusion Act. So when we see a, a lot of people protest, as we, as we have for the last five or six years, people protesting that my ancestors came here from Ireland the right way. They came here the legal way. They came here the proper way. They filed it. That's simply not true. There was no illegal way. There was no legal way. There were no. There weren't these restrictions placed on them. It's very doubtful that a great many people would have been able to come under the under the restrictions we have now, the legal frameworks that we have now. The second thing is, and this this I want to do this as quickly as possible because what Nancy's telling us is absolutely fascinating, and, and, and everyone needs to know more about it. Is immigration and asylum laws historically have always been in reaction to something. For instance, the Chinese Exclusion Acts of the, of the late 19th century I talked about is a reaction to what people in the West Coast especially thought, saw as an overwhelming horde, and that's a, a term they used at the time, of Chinese and Asian people coming in and polluting the American gene pool. And, and people brazenly use these sorts of this sort of sort of language. Only until really uh, uh, the late 60s. Uh, did the United States work with the UN to come up with a comprehensive system for a comprehensive agreement about asylum and what defining what asylum would be? And that, that was placed, the U.S. finally passed a, a Refugee Act in 1980. But again, all of the, uh, the Refugee Act is all based, uh, is implemented based on whichever administration is in power. Now, normally, usually that hasn't been very varied since 1980, except for uh, recently. So, uh, frankly, uh, if you're from Northwest Europe, if your ancestors from Northwest Europe, the chances are your immigration background it was 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 very easy. Right? Um, if you were fr uh, Catholic and from Eastern Europe and from Southern Europe, after the 1920s, you were discriminated against. And if you were, but also if in the most of the middle of the night of the 20th century, if you were fleeing a communist country, asylum was quite easy. If you were fleeing a right wing dictatorship, asylum was very, very difficult. So we, we, we've never sat down as a country and, and, and except we, this one time we sat down with the UN over 20 years and hammered out something, but we've never decided as a country, how do we want to accept asylum uh, uh, refugees and how do we want to uh, uh, define asylum and every time that those laws and like the uh, refugee act of 1980 get passed there are enormous numbers of compromises put in the bill by various uh, uh, people in congress that allow these kind of i won't say they're loopholes because they're actually in the bill uh, that allow different administrations to apply them differently and so it, it's it's it, like I say, it's always a reaction to something. There hasn't been any long-standing, forward-looking, uh, um, you know, moral basis upon which asylum is granted in the United States. I think that's one of the great, great problems in our in our country, and one of the great things we need to address. So, Nancy, if you had your golden scepter to make asylum. Uh, to, to optimize asylum, what would you do? What would be the first change that you would make? I would take the uh, Executive Office of Immigration Review and make it an independent court. I would have the judges 
um, have to be part of some confirmation process and not just be selected by the politicians. I would, I mean, the law needs to be updated. I mean, you know, we have so many asylum seekers from um, environmental damage, and that isn't recognized. I mean, we recognize climate change. We recognize what it's doing, yet when somebody's life is totally upended and they're seeking asylum, we don't recognize that. One other thing, though, that, that and this is a bit controversial, that, that maybe what I'm going to say, there are some people that are okay to stay in the U.S. and work in the U.S., but not be on a path to citizenship and just not have to worry about being deported. And we need to recognize these non-immigrant visas and provide them in a more systematic way. I mean, like many of the Haitians that we just all witnessed in Del Rio that admitted that they had been living in Chile or, or another country for 10 years may be barred from asylum because there's a concept known as firm resettlement. But if they could get into the U.S. and get TPS, temporary protective status, they can stay in the U.S. and work legally and not worry about having to be deported, especially why Haiti sorts through its political problems. So there are things that can be done um, that are not monumental. Not everybody wants to be on a path to citizenship. I know that that's very controversial for the immigration advocates because they think, well, then that creates a second class citizen, uh, you know, second class citizens and, and not citizens, but a second class citizen. Kind of, yeah. But there are people that want to be here and work and that would be okay. We need to provide that, I believe. That's my personal view, period. <laughs> I hope I answered a little bit. Yeah, no, you absolutely, you absolutely did. The other uh, thing is the U.S. relationship with Mexico and what goes on the U.S.-Mexico border is criminal. I mean, I'm at the El Paso border, so it's a little bit different than in California or Brownsville. But, you know, both governments point the finger at the other and I know there's more collaboration and cooperation. I mean, people are paying coyotes $20,000 to get across the border, and yet the U.S. government says they don't know who any of these coyotes are. I, I'm sorry. I don't necessarily believe that. So that, that right there is controversial. But there's a lot oh, we can do. Susan, I think, has a question for you. I do. Um, you mentioned um, Mexico. And so I was reading about the migrant protection program and how um, the Biden administration is having people stay in Mexico um, while they're awaiting, I, I guess, as they ferret through the process. But on the other side of that, Mexico, as I understand it, has to approve those people staying in Mexico. So that's that's a limbo that I, I, I'm just, I can't get my brain to wrap around They're They can't come here and they have to stay back in Mexico, but they're waiting for Mexico to give permission for them to be there as well. Can you speak to that? It's please? a disaster. 
it's a disaster. It's the biggest disappointment under Biden that he hasn't, you know, he initially was going to end MPP. And what happened is, you know, thousands of people were waiting in Mexico in Juarez. I, I can only speak about Juarez. Okay. I mean, I've listened to other people talk about other parts of the border, but I have witnessed it. I've gone to shelters interviewed people that were in the MPP program. They would have to go to the bridge at four in the morning. They would have to go appear before a judge. They would then be bused back to the bridge and wait nine to 15 months for another court hearing. Yet they would be attacked by the cartels. It was not safe for young women. The shelters were overrun. And half the time, Mexico wouldn't allow them permission to work. So the whole plan was so that even though some of these people had legitimate asylum claims, where many also didn't, they just wanted to get into the U.S., there was nowhere safe to wait. When Biden took over, they let people that were in the MPP process across the border. I had one client. I'm a very small group, and I take one of it. One from many different countries, and that exposes me to things. But this MPP person was able to get in. They let his wife in who had had a baby. They live in Iowa, and now they're both waiting for their court cases in Nebraska because there's no immigration court in Iowa. They left El Salvador in 2018, and it's 2021, and they haven't had their first asylum hearing. Crazy. I mean, at least though they're in the U.S., they can get work authorization after a year. But back to the people in Mexico, it is not safe. And what about the Mexicans seeking asylum? And they have to wait in Mexico to make their claim. I mean, the the numbers that have been murdered are astronomical, but the U.S. says it's not in the U.S. It's a very dire situation. And there are, you know, um, immigration attorneys and AILA and other groups that have been monitoring this. But MPP is a disaster. And the fact that Biden administration is even starting to defend it is making people like crazy, mm-hmm. for lack of a better word. <laughs> Well, thank you for that, your experiences and firsthand knowledge and Sorry. editorials on that are very much appreciated and resonate <laughs> deeply with me, as you know. Um, but so ResistBot has over nine and a half million users. You gave us your magic wand list of things that we could change if you would change if you were given the crown and queen of the day throne. So what's next? What can your average citizen do about this? Are these petitions to the executive? Is this a petition to their local legislatures or their state? And lastly, um, what groups do you think you can direct some of our viewers to to make sure that they can continue to stay up to date on all of this and and support and help as they're able? I mean, the the... Individuals requesting asylum, and again, I'm not a a policy person, though, have more than quadrupled because if you look at what's going on around the world, you know, 15 years ago, you know, Syria was a country, Iraq was a country, Venezuela was a country, let alone what was going on in, you know, the Central American countries. And, you know, Africa is a whole nother story. Okay, 
of the, the civil wars and, and what's going on. We need a lot more immigration judges. We need to expand the immigration court because we're a country of rules. And we also need a rational immigration asylum policy. It shouldn't be political, which it has been. And people should, we need better definitions of persecution. I, I mean, we, and it's a federal issue. So it's not your state legislature, it's your senators and representatives. And we all know how well our Congress is working <clears throat> on passing anything. But this has now become a major issue. We need more government people trained in giving interviews. We need a better process where people can wait in this country and work and pay taxes while they're waiting for their due process. Due process is something that is embedded in our Constitution. And when it comes to immigration, somehow people aren't entitled to it. We need to put pressure that immigrants are a part of this country and very productive and pay a lot of taxes and fabulous people. And we're all immigrants. I mean, we, so, but it's federal. The state can't do anything. And it's really Congress because we cannot live with these executive orders that swing, swing like a pendulum. So kind of, so engaged citizens in the United States who find this a very important issue should reach out to their federal congressional representatives is what you're saying. Absolutely. So specifically look for judicial reforms in terms of immigration law, as well as courts specific to this issue. Is, is that what Absolutely. I'm and again, I, I'm, you know, I'm involved with AILA, the American Immigration Law Association. That's the one major organization, but there are a lot of organizations, clinic, Catholic charities, where I am, there's the Annunciation House, there are a lot of local organizations that are advocating for, you know, um, good changes. I'm more involved in representing because that's a huge hole. We need more individual lawyers to represent unrepresented migrants, too. That's a just because it's case by case. There is no class action suit. Everyone is individual and we need more lawyers. And of course, here you come, people who have lost everything don't have a big pocketbook to pay these lawyers. And very often if they've come across the border with a coyote, they owe the coyote a lot of money. And if they don't pay, the coyotes go and punish their families. So yes, we need more people to be pro bono, which is, Kind of hard. I, I can thank my university for my university retirement that gets me through. And I, I do have some paying clients. <laughs> I had a quick question. Um, is there a difference between uh, those that seek asylum when they are able to travel? For example, what I specifically have in mind is, you know, the those that were part of the Hong Kong, um, you know, resistance movement, right. if you will, and were able to hop on planes and travel because they genuinely have a fear now of their lives or being um, um, because of their actions that they took for pro-democracy. Pro is there a difference between when they hop on a plane and land, for example, in the U.S. versus the 
those that come to the border in terms of how they are processed or um, treated, if you will. Absolutely. If you can enter the U.S. on a visa and then within the first year of coming to the U.S., you can apply for asylum affirmatively. It's through USCIS and people interested can look at USCIS.gov. That's the government website. And you can, there's a search engine and you can put in asylum and actually their information is very good. But if you can get into the U.S., either legally or illegally, and within your first year submit an asylum application, which is an I-589, then once you submit that, depending on how long it takes for them to schedule your um, interview, even when your visa runs out, you are in the U.S. with legal permission from the U.S. You don't have status. You have status as an asylum seeker, but... Um, yes, and that's an interview process without a DHS attorney on the other side, and it's before an asylum officer, not a judge. And those cases have a much higher grant rate than before a judge. And to say that, I, you know, I, I spar with these judges because I'm older, I have less to lose than some of the younger attorneys and and some of the judges appreciate that one judge told me that the the key to asylum is two things country and reason so to use your example okay country china what went on in hong kong and reason political freedom that the world saw should be an easier case to win than a mexican fleeing the cartel in mexico or an african fleeing some obscure region in Africa that five people know about. So thank you so much for all of this. This is, I mean, this is just scratching the tip of the iceberg for, for the topic of asylum. And we appreciate your time uh, and, and, and the information that you've given us. Um, we have some petitions on resist.bot. But if you would like to start your own petition, you can text federal to 50409 and start your petition on asylum. This is something that's going to take all of us. It's going to take all of us looking out for our neighbors. So we really appreciate you, Nancy, for your time. I wanted to go around the room and get your uh, final comments and takeaways from today's discussion. Athena, I'm putting you in the hat. Sure. <laughs> um, takeaways, my goodness. Uh, I think I really appreciated the comments. Well, I loved hearing the firsthand um, accounts of what you're facing either in the courtroom and when you're dealing going to <clears throat> the detention centers and all of that. So thank you for enlightening us on that. My key takeaway is this idea that uh, just how unjust the judicial system really is for this process. So... Um, as an American citizen, I think it's important for me to, if I had representation in the Senate, voting representation, I should say, it's important to reach out to our um, legislators to let them know that this is a broken system and it needs addressing, especially as these issues are just going to continue to get heated. And the, the piece about environmental disasters, like with climate change and the harm that uh sort of the global north is inflicting on the world. This is in many ways, if you're 
city or your country is gone because of climate change, I think that should absolutely be added to the list of um, protected groups or issues that would include asylum rights. So I can't thank you enough, Nancy. That's what I've learned today, among many things. Thanks so much, Athena. Susan, wanted to kick it to you. Um, one of the things that I find very interesting um, in real life, I am a litigation paralegal. So to hear that um, how different that court is from what I know of our judicial system, I find that to be very interesting. Um, and that the, you know, the trier of fact is a political appointee. And I know that that happens, uh, you know, in a variety of different appointments, but that there is no confirmation process. And so I wonder when I'm thinking about that, how much prejudice and whatnot comes along to the bench with them. But I'm fascinated by, by hearing what happens in those courtrooms. Christine from you, please. So I am really present even more so to the fact that even though all immigrants, my, my family included, are, you know, have this common, you know, narrative around the U.S. as a place that they want to create a better life for themselves, a place of opportunity, a place to raise your, you know, family, um, you know, our system doesn't treat all immigrants the same way. There is a lot of privilege in certain um, you know, communities and classes or how you arrive here as, as my last question I got the answer for. So it just kind of leaves me feeling like there is just, just a lot more work to do, even though for those who, of us who advocate for immigrants and our immigrants ourselves to be really aware that, they, that you know, there's just such a disparity in terms of how different groups are treated and what can we do to be a voice for that. Thank you. Hey, Joe. Yes. Well, uh, what Nancy has said and what everyone's talked about is just re reinforce what I keep saying on the, on ResistBot, but also on our show is that so much of our government policy towards things like immigration, towards things like asylum are ba based on reactionary feelings and based on an awful lot of hate and based on an awful lot of bigotry. The very few times we sit down, uh, like with the United Nations, and come up with uh, a reasonable moral set of principles on which to decide asylum, that, that that's the ex exception. And then that, again, has been further polluted by what we've talked about, these differences in administrations, a difference in applications. So as a people, we need to get together and and stop t and stop talking about the, the latest uh, group that we decide to hate. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Nancy, for giving us your time. Before we leave, I wanted to, if there was anything that you wanted to direct our attention to and make sure whatever we take away from this, one thing that you maybe wanted to leave with us that we can do starting right now or, or whatever you'd like to bring attention to. I would love to hear that for, from you before we close out. Oh, I think it's great that, that people are focusing on asylum seekers because for some reason, the prior administration criminalized people that were seeking asylum rather than recognize the hardship that they had been. So all asylum seekers, whether they win their case, appeal their case or not, need a lot of support. We are very rich country and 
there are people that I run into that have been friends that say, well, I don't support asylum. I'm like, well, what does that mean to you? And I don't support immigration. Well, what does that mean to you? What I think we need is a little foot soldier revolution of people educating themselves about immigration and being out there as we force the Congress to move. So I so appreciate your organization taking an interest in this and everybody, you know, coming on board because that's what we need. And I appreciate it because it's individuals that are going to make the difference, not these huge organizations. So thank you again so much. And, and I hope I, I, you know, provided some information and didn't confuse people. That's my plan. <laughs> I think you, I think you helped us a lot because this is just something that's bigger than we understand. We really thank you. We thank you for your work with Sammy, um, with uh, the Southwest Asylum and Migration Institute. We really appreciate that, and um, look forward to learning more about this. Hopefully, when we because this the topic of asylum isn't going anywhere. So. We would love to have you back to discuss it. Well, wherever we, Athena is, I am. So she knows that. Well, well we're, I'm, I'm clutching Athena to my bosom. She's she's never going to escape me. So I think that's, <laughs> that's great. Us. Um, we want to thank you again. Thank everyone for watching. Once you remember that Resist Spot is streaming on Facebook, Twitter, Twitch, and YouTube, 1 p.m. every Sunday Eastern time. Um, so, you know, look at football a little late. It's fine. We'll be, it'll be there later. You're, you know, um, if you want to learn more about what we're doing, you can go to resist.bot. If you want to volunteer, if you want to donate, everyone here is a volunteer. We're all taking time on our Sundays because we think that addressing the, the issues that impact our neighbors is important. And we want you to know that we think you're important. So like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, Subscribe to YouTube and Twitch and um, our podcast. This is available where all podcasts can be found. Um, So, and we will have our episode up, I believe on Wednesday. So by Wednesday, you will be hearing from us. This has been Resist Spot Live. Thank you and bye-bye. Resist Bot Live originally airs as a live stream every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern on Twitch, YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook, and is brought to you by the same folks behind the chatbot. If you haven't used Resist Bot before, it's simple. iPhone users, go to resist.bot on the web and tap the iMessage button. Non-iPhone users, open your text messaging app and compose a new text message. For the phone number, type 50409. In the message field, type resist or any of the keywords you heard on the show. You can also direct message ResistBot on Twitter or the Telegram app. For a printable keyword guide and more, visit our website at resist.bot. Our website has a complete guide to creating powerful public policy or voter turnout campaigns. And we're here to support your activism. Email support at resist.bot if you need help getting started. ResistBot is a nonprofit social welfare company built by volunteers and supported by your donations. You can donate on our website or email volunteer at resist.bot if you want to join our team. Regular contributors include Melanie Dion, Athena Foulet, Susan Stutz, Dr. Joseph Kuhill, and Scott McTaggart. Thank you for listening.